Today is Reformation Sunday. Um, it's a Sunday often associated kind of near All Saints Day, which is also connected to Halloween, so this time of year. And uh, last year I did a, a biographical sermon of Martin Luther and sort of talked about his life. And this year I wanted to talk about John Calvin, who was an important reformer that um, was somewhat a contemporary of, John, of Martin Luther, but came a little later. He was sort of the next generation of leaders in the Reformation. Calvin is a really important character, not just because he is the namesake of the famous comic character from Calvin and Hobbes, uh, nor because he is the namesake of my younger son, Colvin, which is a variation of Calvin. John Calvin was an important reformer. He brought a lot of the things of the Reformation forward. He's really the father of Presbyterianism um, through one of his students. Had an influence on the way the United States government was set up years later. Had an influence potentially, some scholars say, on capitalism. Very interesting figure, very interesting character. And so today I just want to talk about his life and his thoughts and uh, we'll look at some scripture as we go along here. But I want to talk about John Calvin. John Calvin was born in 1509, July 10th, in Nyon, France. Just a few years ago, a lot of new books were written and kind of rediscovering John Calvin because it was the 500-year anniversary of his birth. Now think back to that time period because it's an important time period to think about. The new world has been discovered and is starting to be explored it's the, the time of the Enlightenment. Because of the invention of the printing press, we have all of a sudden all kinds of books that have never been available to people. And so there are a number of people starting to read what philosophers and what the ancient church fathers uh, had, had written. The man named Erasmus had done some work in getting the Bible and some original languages back into the hands of scholars. And... <coughs> Sorry, I was sick this week. I didn't have a voice from like Wednesday to Friday. So I'm still recovering. So we'll see how we do here. Um, at this time was also a dark time though. It was kind of the end of the Middle Ages, the feudal time period. The, the church and the government at its time had, had been really connected, kind of joint at the hip where you couldn't quite tell always where one ended and the other began. The time, it was the time of the plague, and if you know a lot about the plague, we know now that the plague was spread a lot through rodents that would go from house to house and spread. But at the time, they didn't know how it was spread. So a lot of times on a house, you might have eight houses, and it may be four or five get the plague, and four or five don't get the plague, but they're not all in a row, you know? There's not a lot of connection between the two, and so there was a lot of question about well, are certain people cursed? And that's how they get the plague. Into this time, John Calvin was born. His father wanted him to be a priest. His father had been a lawyer and seemed to, he worked for the local diocese. He, he worked as sort of a manager and accountant as, as a lawyer. You could do a lot of those kind of jobs as well in those days. Um, wanted his son to become a priest. So when his son came of age, he went to the University of Paris and uh, there started reading a lot of these church fathers and a lot of these philosophers. He became what, what we call a humanist. Somebody who was, at, it's a term used differently back then, but it was somebody who was looking back and wanted to read what people before them had said. And so even in a lot of Calvin's writings, he quotes a lot of different people. He loved to read and study. 
Erasmus was at that time still in Paris, and so there was a big push to read the scriptures. But eventually his father got in trouble with the church, got into a disagreement with the church where he worked, and so he eventually wrote his son and said, no, you should not be a priest and study theology, you should go study law. And so in those days you did what your father told you to, and so Calvin, being a good son, switched back over to law. Although his real love was theology, his real love was the church fathers. And so when his father eventually passed away, he switched back. Sometime in there, Calvin had a real awakening experience. He, God got a hold of him in some way. We know very little about it, except he describes it in his, the intro to the commentary on the Psalms. He said, <coughs> God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor. Calvin, in reading the church fathers and really starting to discover scripture, remember people hadn't had a printing press. They hadn't had access to scripture. Only the priests had. As he started to read the scripture, he became fascinated by two major, major themes that I think were the themes that thrust his life forward. One was the sovereignty of God. Calvin thought when he, when he studied the church fathers, when he started looking at the Bible for himself, that God was just so big. That there was nothing in life that God didn't have control or sway over. Listen to this text from Colossians chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Pay attention to how many times Paul uses all or every in this passage. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. You get the feeling that for Paul, Jesus is everything. He's Lord over all things. And I think for Calvin, this was the deal. Everything belonged to Jesus. Everything in this world whether governments, whether businesses, whether lives, everything belonged to God. As Abraham Kuyper, a later follower of Calvin's teaching, what would be called a Calvinist, once said, this, I love this quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's nothing in your life there's nothing in this world for which Jesus can't look at it and point to it and say, that's mine. And you're mine, and she's mine, and he's mine, and that's mine. That is the huge vision that Calvin had for God. And so he loved to study things like the Trinity. 
He loved to, to get deep into some of the deeper thoughts of, Christ, of Scripture. And he, it drove him crazy when people would question those things. For Calvin, though, it was, also, uh, it was also okay that you didn't know everything. He understood that a God, God that was that big, that was so much everything, so over everything, so involved in everything, could be really beyond our comprehension. This year I've been reading one of Calvin's, well, Calvin's really major book that he, he read. I've been reading it all year. And uh, I'm amazed at how many times he talks about mystery. He talks about how much we can't know. He's not sure about certain things, but he's so captivated by this huge God that his life is never the same. Extension of that then is his view of Scripture. He looked at verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Calvin understood that the Bible, not because it was this special magical book, but because it was a special revelation by this God that is so sovereign over all things, the Bible has a special authority in his life. And so as he studied these things, and as these thoughts developed in him, he more and more became... Protestant. He more and more became one of these reformers because he looked at the church of his day and said, this church doesn't believe in a God that's that big. It believes in, in really focusing on the Pope and the cardinals and the, the councils that had said certain interpretations of Scripture. Scripture is of too low an authority. And so he becomes more and more involved in the Protestant Reformation which eventually forces him out of France. There is a, a speech delivered by a, an important person at the University of Paris, and uh, that person has to flee because he's under threat of being arrested. And when they look at his speech, they find it is written in Calvin's handwriting. And people believe Calvin probably wrote that speech. Calvin was forced to flee, just like you see in the movies. He had a bunch of bed sheets and blankets tied together. And, and threw him out the window so he could climb down and get away at night. And he began to travel under an assumed name under threat of his life. He continues to think and he continues to write. And it's during this time that he writes the first edition of his major book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. There's the big thing right there. Which he rewrote about four times in his life and it eventually became this big book. There's my bookmark. I'm going to get to it by the end of the year. I'm going to finish this dad blasted thing. What Calvin wanted to do was, he had all these people that were suddenly studying the Bible for themselves. And he had all kinds of questions about the reformers. What is this faith? How is it different than the faith we're currently proclaiming? And so what Calvin wanted to do was write a book that was a general guideline to the theology of the reformed faith. And generally gave a basic understanding so that if people wanted to read the Bible for themselves, they had some kind of starting point. And so it has become one of the most important books in Christian history. To this day, when I was in seminary, there were a number of classes where we were forced to read parts of it. On the Trinity, on the sacraments, on worship. Because Calvin set the stage for a lot of the writing that was to come. And his writing was also based a lot in the church fathers. So he quotes a lot of people from before him. 
At some point, Calvin decided that he wanted to go to Strasbourg to do some studying, but because of a, of a war that was going on at that time, he had to kind of go around his direct route, and he decided he was going to stop off at a little city called Geneva. Geneva had just recently joined the Reform Movement. He was only supposed to be there a night, but that night turned out to be a major turning point in world history. Because there was a leader there named Pharrell who found out that Calvin was in town. Calvin wrote of the evening this way. Then Pharrell, who was working with incredible zeal to promote the gospel, bent all his efforts to keep me in the city. And when he realized that I was determined to study in privacy in some obscure place, that's what Calvin always wanted to do. He just wanted to study and write and affect the Reformation that way. Pharrell wouldn't let him. And saw that he gained nothing by entreaty, he descended to cursing and said that God would surely curse my peace if I held back from giving help at a time of such great need. Terrified by his words and conscious of my own timidity and cowardice, I gave up my journey and attempted to apply whatever gift I had in defense of my faith. And so Calvin stayed at Geneva. Decided that he was going to do work there. This is the same Geneva from which Geneva College across the river here gets its name. Geneva had, been, been, had thrown off the Catholic influence. But really it wasn't that into the Reformed faith. It seemed apparent that what people really just wanted was the church to leave them alone. There was a lot of really bad ethical behavior in that town. Particularly with the wealthy. They were allowed to drink and party. Among the upper class, it was acceptable to have misters and mistresses. I don't know where the male of mistresses is, but you understand. And even to sway, to trade partners for the night with other couples. And so they thought, well, let's get rid of the Catholic Church so they'll stop saying stuff about the behavior that we have. Which was a good idea until Calvin came around. Because Calvin believed that God was sovereign over all things, including behavior. Calvin's vision was for Geneva to become a city of God. A place where the church took seriously the claims of the Bible and the form of government that the Bible might lead them to. He wanted to separate the church and the state, not totally, not the way we talk about it today. But he wanted the church to be free to exercise its own authority. Things got feisty and Calvin himself was a very brash young man at the time and seemed to accentuate a lot of problems there. Calvin was not well accepted in Geneva. Remember, he's French. So when he goes to Geneva, they're not really accepting him. He's not even a member of the community until much later. He's young, he's poor, and he is brash. And if you disagree with him, he's more, more than happy to fight with you about any kind of topic you want to fight him on. At this time, he keeps writing. He keeps now preaching and teaching in the churches, many commentaries and letters. He continues to develop his thoughts about God and the sovereignty of God. Writes some of the most beautiful stuff you can read about the Trinity, on how we need to be united with Christ, that Christ's pain and suffering becomes our life. He writes about the church sacraments. In fact, Calvin fought a lot about the church sacraments. Because at the time there was a lot of discussion about particularly communion. What happens at communion? 
And Zwingli, who's a reformer from the Swiss area, um, wanted to say it was just, when we have communion, it's just a memory. It's nothing spiritual really happening there. Luther tend to stay a little more towards the Catholic aim, where there's something special that happens to the bread and to the juice. But Calvin said, no, 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 no. It's not just a memory, because our God is sovereign. But it's not something with the bread and the juice, because Jesus' sacrifice has already paid for everything. We don't need to continue to have new sacrifice. No, there's something special that happens when we come to the table, because we are at the table. His favorite part of the communion liturgy was, and we sometimes say it, we say, lift up your hearts to the Lord. The idea was that somehow the Holy Spirit lifts us up into the presence of Jesus at the sacrament. A a thing that would be called later real presence. There's some kind of real presence that we have with the Lord at the communion table. Again, Calvin was okay with mystery. So he was okay not having to figure out exactly how all that worked, simply that it was. Calvin did not get along well in Geneva, though. You can imagine he ticked a lot of people off. And finally, at, at this stage, after he'd been there about a year and a half, they had an Easter service coming up, and the, the city council had ordered the preachers, the pastors of Geneva, and said that they had to use unleavened bread at the Easter service for communion. I don't think the preachers really had a real care about what kind of bread it was. But they were not going to put up with the council telling the pastors what they had to do in their churches. And so they refused to serve communion on Easter. Easter service went by, no communion. The pastors were then exiled from Geneva. And so after only a year and a half being there, in 1538, Calvin was kicked out. The experiment had failed Not knowing what to do, Calvin decided to finish the journey he had started a year and a half ago and finish the trip to Strasbourg. In Strasbourg, he expected he would be able to continue his life how he wanted to do it, just studying and and writing. But there was a man there named Martin Mooser, who was an early reformer, but he he was different than a lot of the other reformers in that he had a real pastor's heart. He really cared for the people. He really, he, he wrote a book called Concerning the True Care of Souls that I read in seminary that is just a wonderful testimony to the work of the pastor. Calvin, persuaded by Booser, became pastor to a church for French refugees in that town, often caring for the poor. I think he matured as a man and he became much more of a pastor, got more of a pastor's heart. At this time also, Calvin decided to get married. He had been encouraged by some to to think about getting married. Remember, priests didn't get married. And so this was a new thing that the pastors of the Reformed Church got married. Calvin was not looking for love. He was really looking for what almost seemed like a business partner. Listen, Listen to his, this is from one of his letters. This only is the beauty which attracts me. If she is chaste, if not too nice or fastidious, if economical, if patient, if there is hope that she will be interested about my health. Calvin was not looking for love, but he seemed to find it. After trying, a couple people trying to hook him up with different ladies in the community, he met a woman named Idolette de Burr, who had two children and had lost her husband. In fact, Calvin had done the funeral. 
And through that experience, they had gotten to know each other a little bit, and he fell in love and got married. And so Calvin got two stepchildren in the process. And this seemed to calm him down a little bit. At the same time, during his years in Strasbourg, he lost some friends. Some people had been killed for their Reformed belief. He lost a friend to the plague, as many people had in that day. Listen to how he described it. The news caused him to be, here's the quote, so utterly unpowered that for many days I was unfit for nothing but to weep. Yet among men, I was almost a non-entity. It's one of the most profound ways of describing grief I think I've ever read. Unfit for nothing but to weep. Yet among men, I am almost a non-entity. If you ever lost someone close, isn't that an interesting description? All you can think about is weeping until you can't weep anymore. And when you're around people, it's like you're not even there. Still, Calvin had some good things. He had his wife. His wife became pregnant with a son. Things seemed peaceful. Meanwhile, back at Geneva, things were not going well. Wild living, disorder, conflicts. And finally, the leadership of Geneva wrote to Calvin and asked him if he would return to Geneva. To which Calvin basically said, no way, Jose. There's no way I'm going back there. I got it nice here. Things are going okay. Why would I want to go back to that place of conflict? But over time, Calvin decided in talking with his wife and talking with a number of friends that he would return to Geneva. Every week, Calvin would preach through books of the Bible. In fact, Calvin would preach normally twice on Sunday, and he would preach on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Five sermons a week on a typical week. Plus, he was teaching Bible on top of that about four or five times a week. I don't know how he had time to do all this. When he returned to Geneva, amazingly, he started to off right at the very next verse that he had left off at five years ago. And so in 1541, began his ministry again at Geneva. Things continued to be rough for him. He had conflict with the government. Continuing problems with the ethics. He wanted to have the church have the right to say when people could or could not have communion. But the government wanted to be able to do that. Arguments over what was, the, what was to be uh, the sacrament of communion and what that meant. Arguments over predestination and free will. Calvin thought God was so sovereign, he did not have a lot of patience for arguments of free will. If God is that powerful and that ruler over all things, then it has to be a, all God's decision that we are saved and had very little understanding that it was ours. His son, who was to be born to his wife, Idolette, um, passed away about two weeks after he was born. And she never quite recovered from that. She seemed to have had some illnesses as a side effect of that. They tried to get pregnant two other times and both had miscarriages or had a um, child born a day or two after he was born. And so his wife became uh, less and less together. It was a struggle for him. She finally died in 1549. Calvin wrote of the experience... I have been bereaved of the best friend of my life. This one who, if it had been so ordained, would willingly have shared not only my poverty, but also my death. During her life, she was a faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced 
the slightest hindrance. It weighed on him a lot to lose his wife, who have never had his sons or daughters, but he did take care of his stepchildren as he had promised her that he would do. Got into many conflicts with people in the church. At one point he came into church and he had a threatening letter on his pulpit, some of which said, you and your fellows would, would do better to shut up. We don't want all these masters. Beware of what I say. The understanding was if Calvin, they thought Calvin was gaining power so that he could kind of become like Bishop or Pope of Geneva, which eventually they would figure out was not the case. There was another time where there were people who the, the leadership had said were not allowed to have communion, and they all decided that they were going to go in and force the pastors to give them communion anyway, and Calvin was, was at the table at that day, and so they were going to demand And it was well known around town they were going to go in and demand communion. They had worn their swords to church and they were going to force their way. But Calvin reached around and grabbed the communion elements like this. And he said, these hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give up the holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my Lord. And then there was a big commotion where some of the people were ready to come up and lop off his arms. And other people in the church were not willing to. Those are what we call the pastor's favorites. After all this conflict, he had kept up this schedule of preaching. Sometimes up to three times a day on Sunday teaching. He also was writing letters. He was involved in the politics of Geneva, though never in an official capacity. He also began to have more and more leaders of the Reformation that would come to study with him. And he, I, I have a, a book set of all his, a bunch of his letters that we still have where he was writing constantly to other church leaders and encouraging them and teaching them. All of this, however, had very bad effects on his health. We know from his letters that he had probably irritable bowel syndrome. Um, he, Calvin ate one time a day. Because he found that if he ate one time a day, that would help control some of these stomach things. Terrible hemorrhoids, trouble with his lungs. He became weak very often. Sometimes he would do a lot of his work from bed. The stress and the crazy schedule got to him over time. Preached nearly 290 sermons a year in the years that we can track. Normally, normally nearly 200 lectures on the scriptures guy wrote thousands and thousands of sermons. He often tinkered with the worship service. Much of what you have in your worship bulletin today uh, comes from Calvin's work. In fact, today we use Calvin's uh, call to worship and call to confession, prayer, and assurance. Just like he would have used in Strasbourg is the particular one. Calvin eventually won his way in the ways of Geneva and he was able to influence a lot of refugees to bring business and new financial leadership to the city. But Calvin in the end did not take power as everyone suggested he would. He continued to work until his death. He also brought um, education to Geneva. Started Geneva, uh, uh, Calvin College there. Um, the, the theme verse for that college was the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That was his life. The fear of this sovereign God. That's where wisdom starts. 
Calvin died May 27th, 1564. Wanted to be buried at an unknown grave. So you can go see a, a monument to him and a grave to him. But that's not where he was buried. Nobody remembers where he was buried. He did not even want to have a gravestone. He just wanted to die and be left in peace. Calvin was not perfect. He was a man of his age. If you look him up online, you'll find that he was often testifying against heretics and against people who um, were causing disruptions in the church. And many of those people were beheaded or were burned because that's what you did to people in those days who were, uh, who were causing disruptions in, in the community. And so Calvin was not a perfect man. He was a man of his age. And I don't think... We can look favorably upon those things, except that was how things were done in his day. One of his major influences was on a man named John Knox. John Knox was a Scotsman who had fled England. Uh, Mary of Tudor had come to power. We know her mainly from the drink, Bloody Mary. Um, She was killing the Protestants at that time. And John Knox had fled to Geneva and was trained and was under the tutelage of John Calvin. He learned Calvin's theology, his worship practices, and his polity. The church that he had been working in, that he came back to Scotland to found, was led by elders, which Calvin's church had sort of developed, called presbyters. And so when John Knox came back, he started the Presbyterian Church in Scotland and had a major influence in that. So to this day, our theology how we talk about sacraments and the Trinity, how our church does worship, the general outline of your bulletin, how our church polity, our government is structured. All those things really come from Calvin through John Knox. Calvin was also very influential in the Puritans. And so a lot of the same kind of form of government that Calvin was trying to develop with this idea of presbyters and sort of representative government The Puritans and a whole bunch of Presbyterians helped set up in our very own country. God used Calvin in a mighty way. Under threat, under dishealth, under a lot of struggles, Calvin remained faithful. So what can we learn from this man? First of all, I want you to be captured by this idea that God is sovereign. That God is over all things. That there is nothing in your life, nothing in your world that God can't point to and say that's mine. Because that changes how you relate to God. That changes how you think about the Bible. That changes how you approach going to church. That changes everything. Notice especially the importance that Calvin put on the Bible. That he wanted to be driven by and guided by the Holy Scriptures. Not because of his faith in the Scriptures, but because of his faith in this sovereign God. Who had given this very particular way that we can listen to and get to know him. And how many of us have been through difficulties? Through loss? How many of us have felt unpowered so that we can do nothing but weep? Or felt like a non-entity? It's in those moments that more and more we need a sovereign God. We need to believe that God is with us and can take us through. May Calvin be an example for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of John Calvin. For his life, for his words, for his influence. May we be thankful. 
consume us with this idea that you are sovereign, that you are over all things. Speak to us your truths through your word. Amen.